0: it's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue
1: and that's when i really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds investing is about innovation the belief is if there's a new piece of information that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever but that's not how people change their minds
0: Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. On Wednesday, October 26th, we hosted our latest live interview on Twitter with expert investor and financial educator Brian Feroldi. I asked Brian for his three principles of long-term investing. We discussed the eighth wonder of the world in compound interest, strategies for investing in a bear market, and the critical components of a long-term portfolio. With live questions from the audience, as well as answers to quickfire questions, including Brian's favorite quote, as well as his most valued resource, Brian provided some valuable insights. Remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Right, well, welcome everyone. Welcome, Brian. Good morning. How are you getting on?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, It's morning for us here. I know it's early afternoon for you, so... Thanks to the magic of Twitter for making this happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, There's a few things I need to run through uh, just in regards to housekeeping, really. So I'll get through that boring stuff and then we can kick off. Firstly, I've just been asked to read the following disclaimer. Uh, So CMC Markets, uh, of which Opto is related, is an execution-only service provider. The material, whether or not it states any opinions, is for general information purposes only and does not take into account your personal circumstances or objectives. Nothing in this material is or should be considered to be financial investment or other advice on which... Reliance should be placed and no opinion given the material constitutes a recommendation by CMC Markets or the author uh, that any particular investment security transaction or investment strategy is suitable for any specific person. Yeah, so sorry about that. Now that's uh, out of the way. Those uh, disclaimers seem to get longer every time. Uh, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Hayden Brain, so head of content at Opto. And for anyone that doesn't know Opto, we're a stock market focused publication based here in London. And... Really, our mission is to speak to successful traders and investors to better understand their strategies. And for anyone wishing to receive a roundup of our best content every day, just subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in our Twitter bio. And as always, for anyone that would like to speak during the session today, just request to speak and I'll bring you in as soon as I can. But right, without further ado, let's get into it. So as the title of the event indicates, I want to address three principles of long-term investing that I've seen highlighted in Brian's newsletter. Let's start with compounding. So While Albert Einstein allegedly described compound interest as the eighth wonder of the world, why do you think a lot of investors fail to fully recognize its significance, Brian, and the impact it can have on their portfolios? Well, good morning, everybody. And thank you
1: for having me. That's an interesting question to answer because the human brain was not really developed to comprehend the power of compounding. You know, we live Moment by moment, day by day, and if you look back at the history of the S and P 500, the undeniable long-term trend is up and to the right. And the historic rate of compounding for the S and P 500 has been somewhere around 10% annualized return. If you include the dividends, if you subtract out inflation for there, it's somewhere around six to seven percent. Now, if you put that number into any compound annual growth rate calculator, You can see that over a short period of time, a 10% return annualized uh, amounts to not a whole heck of a lot. But over a period of years and decades compounded, it results in a gargantuan amount of money. I've previously shared on my uh, Twitter page this wonderful picture that shows Warren Buffett's net worth over time. And if you look at any given short period, the changes in his net worth look inconsequential but over the last decade he has added tens of billions of dollars of wealth to his uh, his personal estate uh, simply by continuing to hold and continuing to compound but our brains aren't really designed to handle that that amount of information i mean just a, a really small example imagine that you're saving $1000 per year for the first 10 years you know you've saved $10,000 and if you compound that in the market that probably doubles to about 20 or 25,000, something like that. If you keep doing that for a couple of decades, it won't be long before you have a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, in your account. Let's say you get up to half a million. What's a 10% return on half a million dollars? Well, the answer there is $50,000. $50,000 is a 10% gain on half a million. That is more money then you would have contributed to your account over you know a 20 or 30 year period. That is a really hard concept to understand which is why Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world. Um, so I think it's just a flaw in human psychology and human thinking that we are programmed to think linearly one two, three, four. we don't intuitively understand uh, exponentials one two, four, eight, 16, 32.
0: Um, So that is just something that investors have to intuitively study and understand. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to my next question, because I want to follow up on on that point. Um, We spoke to a little while back now, Morgan Housel, who I believe you featured in your newsletter and probably have spoken to on on various sort of events and things like that. And he was quoted as saying compounding is hard because a bad month can feel longer than a good decade. I mean, if we we relate that to the S&P 500, the 10-year return on that index at the end of September was around 150%. Oh, the index is is down around 20% this year and, and uh, has looked less favorable, let's say, in recent times. So with with bears and, and doomsayers, often the loudest voices in current market discourse, how how sorely missed is a long-term perspective within that discourse, do you think? And perhaps do you think or do you see yourself filling that void?
1: Well, ask yourself if you've been paying attention to the markets or the world over the last year, how do you feel right now? How has the last year or so felt? The answer is awful. Just awful. Prices are going down in pretty much every market that you can think of. Inflation is rising. The news has been completely negative. It feels like we're investing through unprecedented times right now. And it may become (laughs) unprecedented times uh, in all realities uh, if the war in Europe continues to escalate. Uh, the way that it has. And the, the declines that we've seen feel just like extraordinary, given how much their attention they're getting, given the extreme volatility that we've uh, we've seen. But if you were to just guess intuitively where the, the price we're at right now, when is the last time we were at that level? How far back in history do you have to go to get to a period where we're at the same level in the S&P 500? Well, I'm looking at a chart right now. And the Dow, uh, excuse me, the S&P 500, the SPY, I should say, is currently at uh, 668. Uh, That's the total return level. That gets us back to the return that we saw in April of 2021. April of 2021. So the big decline we've seen over the last year or so has essentially brought us back just about 18 months to prices work. Now, the funny thing is, how did people feel about the markets in April of 2021? Well, my guess is they felt pretty darn good. They were at all time highs back then. There was no threat of war, but there was still plenty of bad stuff happening in the world. Uh, COVID was still uh, raging. My kid's school, which is the thing that I gauge uh, COVID levels, they were still wearing a mask just coming out of that. Vaccines were just starting to roll out, but we still couldn't see friends and family the way that we can now. And yet, even though the price is at the exact same level. Uh, it was at that time. What investors have experienced uh, since then was a rapid rise up and then a rapid uh, decline. But from a wealth perspective, the S&P 500 is at the same place it was in April of 2021. Uh, 20, uh, but how does it feel to have been investing since then? How does it feel? It feels awful because we saw a jump and then we saw a decline. Now, imagine if over the exact same period, rather than a jump in the decline, all we had was flat. If the market just went completely dead sideways, how would we feel by comparison? My guess is we would feel much better if the market was completely flat than if it went up and then it, uh, it, it declined. And this just goes so well with human psychology. We are hardwired to feel declines at 3X the, uh, the, the, the pain level, then we, then we experience the joy uh, from, from gains. So going down 20% is the equivalent from a feeling perspective as going up 60%. That's just how humans are hardwired. And I so believe what Morgan said in his quote, he said, I mean, to your point, compounding is hard because a bad month can feel longer uh, than a good decade. A bad month can feel longer than a good decade. That is just so true. And the funny thing is, if you're an investor, depending on how long you've been investing for, if you look back at the S&P 500 at any, any period in time, every single decline in in hindsight looks like an obvious buying opportunity. Uh, March of 2020 looks like an obvious buying opportunity. December of 2018 looks like an obvious buying opportunity. 2008 looks like an obvious buying opportunity. 2002 looks like an obvious buying opportunity. So looking backwards, everything, all bear markets look like obvious buys, but when you're living through them day by day, moment by moment, when the news continually comes in and it's bad and you see day after day, moment after moment of stocks declining, stocks declining, stocks declining, it just feels completely differently when you're looking backwards than when you're actually experiencing it in real time. And this is why investing is so challenging psychologically. If you're on this call, you know that the way to do well do well in the markets over time is to buy continuously and hold voraciously for long, long, long periods of time. And that sounds so easy to do so in theory, but living through a bear market will test your resolve like nothing else.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I've got a point I want to follow up on actually, um, and then we can bring some questions in if someone wants to request to speak. But um, yeah, you mentioned sort of people... Thinking about the current environment and and whether they should or shouldn't invest for the long term now, I mean, as inflation surges, interest rates rise, globalization goes into reverse, all those structural factors that had driven up equity prices in the last decade. With that environment in mind, should retail investors in particular pay more attention to compounding their returns over the long term or is now the time to allocate more tactically, do you think?
1: Well, if you have the uh, desire and the skill to allocate tactically, and you think that you can, say, time the market or be more tactical with it, if you want to try that, go for it. I have tried that in the past, and what I have learned the hard way is that my market timing skills are horrendous, just horrendous. If you were to ask me in March of 2020 uh, what was going to happen next in the market, I would have given you the complete thumbs down. The business world is changing. It's a terrible time to buy. And what happened next? The market went on, you know, the biggest rally in history. Stocks pretty much doubled from them. Uh, Moreover, I personally thought the stock market was dramatically overvalued in 2017. 2017. And uh, if I acted on that impulse, if I took everything out of the market, I would have missed out on a massive, massive uh, gain. Moreover, one thing that 2008 and 2009 and 2010 really taught me was just how unbelievably difficult it is to make macro forecasts. Back in 2009, the U.S. government was bailing out AIG, financial institutions. Uh, they, were, they were bailing out the auto sector. The unemployment rate was skyrocketing. You know, Interest rates hit rock bottom. And there were calls everywhere for, get ready, massive inflation is coming. The money supply just doubled, just tripled. And get ready for a year of incredible inflation. And that made so much logical sense to me, right? The, the dollar was gonna become uh, worthless, it was gonna be devalued, get your money into foreign currencies, diversify across, um, across currencies to protect your purchasing power. And all of those arguments just made such logical sense. And then what happened over the next decade? We saw the dollar. Largely strengthen, and we've seen the dollar is now strengthened against basically every uh, currency uh, out there. We saw a decade of some of the lowest inflation on record, and that just showed me that making macro calls based on what you saw uh, happening in the market, even if they were based on sound principles, is just pure folly. Um, and then I remember vividly in 2010, you know, the market had recovered from its 2009 lows and there were calls everywhere for up oh, this is this is a suckers rally you know get ready for the bear market rally anybody who's buying right now is is a sucker the easy money has been made and that headline repeated itself in 2009 2010 2011 2012 and all along the way there were plenty plenty of reasons to be bearish about uh, the markets bearish about the dollar bearish about um, inflation and we saw you know a 10-year period that was just one of the greatest um, 10-year periods uh, in investing history. Uh, so for that reason, knowing that the quote unquote experts that I've seen couldn't predict what was going to happen at a macro level and judging based my own history of me having a hunch for what was going to happen and then seeing what actually happened, I have since learned that I am terrible at forecasting short-term movements in the market. So I don't even try to do that now at all. Uh, What I do is I commit to a dollar cost averaging over long periods of time. I'm constantly deploying money uh, into the markets and buying, and doing so for a couple of decades is my strategy. I know that that strategy is going to look stupid at certain periods of time when the market is just declining. Dollar cost averaging is going to look stupid. Every buy that I'm making every month looks very, very dumb. However, if the market continues to do what the market was created to do if humans continue to prosper if innovation continues to happen as i believe it will over the next 10, 20 and 30 years i'm confident that during that time frame the markets will eventually recover will eventually rehit all time a high. so personally i've made zero changes to anything that i do with my with my money or my uh, my capital based on what we've seen in 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 the markets that's my personal view if you have a desire to be more tactical, or if you think that you can time the market or outsmart the market or hedge or do any of those things, and you want to spend the time doing so, go for it. Um, if you think you have the skill to do that, I know myself that I do not.
0: Got it. Yeah. And I guess that's one of those core cool principles of, of long-term. If anyone is interested to learn more about that uh, dollar strengthening phenomenon, I'm actually speaking to Michael Cow on the Opto Sessions podcast in a couple of weeks time, and he's got this theory about the, the dollar wrecking ball and how. Dollar strength is actually bad for markets and specifically stock market, and so worth looking out for, and again, you'll get more information on that if you subscribe to our newsletter. But let's move on. Um, we, we've kind of touched on it already, but I'm interested to get your thoughts on how people might approach a bear market with that long-term time horizon. And I thought we could address this topic by inspecting a few well-known investing adages. So first, how true is it? do you think that the best time to invest is when no one else wants to invest? I think that's completely true.
1: <laughs> the, the, the entry price, the entry valuation that you pay into any asset uh, determines has a big impact on your long-term change, Right, w- Looking back, when were the best times to invest over the last 40 years? They were when stocks hit their bottom, and what was the mood at that time? The mood at that time was stocks were awful assets. They'd just gone down uh, recently, and nobody wanted to put uh, capital. Uh, into them. So uh, it, it's it, it's completely true. The The best time to invest is when no one wants to invest, or the best time to invest is when it feels worst to invest. Bill Mann, uh, one of my uh, friends and a, an investor that I, I respect, he basically says, the best buys I've ever made was when I was throwing up in my mouth at the same time that I was hitting the buy button. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, to build on that then, and with global recession looming, it's not already upon us. To to what extent do you believe that bear markets transfer wealth from short-term pessimists to long-term optimists?
1: So investing in a bear market is very, very, very mentally, mentally challenging. And how well you do as an investor is going to be measured by what price you buy at and what price you sell at. Ideally, there's a huge amount of time between those two things which allows the stock market to do its thing and to compound your wealth over long periods of time. But Nassim Taleb has this great point about um, investing, um, and it's a really important concept to understand, which he calls your uncle point. If there is a a point in your investing when you're going through a bear market, when you reach the point that you throw up your hands because the short-term results have been so awful, right? the pain that you've experienced has been so terrible, That you throw up your hands in disgust and you panic sell. The returns that you're going to realize on your investment is going to be from when you bought to when you panic sold. And if you panic sell, uh, if you sell out of fear, you're always going to be doing so at the worst possible time. So the returns that you earn as an investor aren't going to be what the market does. Your returns are going to be from your starting point to your uncle. Point. And if you are a forced seller or if you are a panic seller during periods in 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 bear markets, your returns are going to be uh, horrendous by comparison. J.P. Morgan has this wonderful study, a uh, wonderful graphic that they put out about uh, that shows what the markets have done over various periods of time and how individual investors have done over various periods of time. And the numbers were like, you know, over a 30-year period, the S&P 500 returned 9% and During that period, the average investor earned a return of like 3%. Those are annualized numbers. That's a 6% gap between what the investment did and what the investor earned. Why did that happen? You know the answer. The behavior, the behavior of those uh, investors. Investors tend to buy when it feels best, which is when markets are hitting all time highs, and they tend to sell when it feels worst, which is when markets are hitting all time uh, lows. So, If you have the resolve to do the exact opposite of that, or at least not panic sell and be a steady buyer uh, during periods, I totally believe that quote. Um, So bear markets transfer wealth from essentially short-term pessimists or people that can't handle the short-term viability to long-term optimists, aka people that can handle the short-term volatility. Investing isn't easy. Investing in the stock market is not easy, nor is it supposed to be easy it will tax your emotions like, like anything uh, else. But if you want to do well as an investor, you have to, mandatory, you have to be willing to suffer through extended periods of painful uh, drawdowns. If you can't handle that, if you just don't have the resolve to handle that, that's fine. The stock market isn't for you. Find another place to invest your capital.
0: Yeah, completely agree. And I think we'll move on. I think we've covered... I guess some strategy best practice and some key principles like i wanted to at the start of start of this event um, but now perhaps just to make it less abstract and to make some of the insights a little bit more actionable we can move on to what the folio might look like in essence i don't think we need to be too specific here but i was reading before the call that goldman warned last year of a lost decade for returns from traditionally weighted portfolios, so that 60 40 split and according to vanguard while the FTSE world index has posted an average annual return of 9.9% since all the way back to 1993, this is unlikely to be repeated over the coming years. And furthermore, an entire generation of investors, a lot of which will be on the call, uh, have zero experience investing in an inflationary or even stagflationary environment. So how broadly should investors look to construct their portfolios to, to navigate the tricky waters ahead, do you think, Brian? Yeah, and
1: I'll just add another wrinkle to that many investors on the call, myself included, have no experience investing in a period that doesn't include 0% interest rates. For the entire time that I've been paying attention to the market, the only place that you could put your capital was the stock market. Bonds paid next to nothing, and on a real basis, the actual return that you get from them was essentially zero. Uh, Buffett called them a place to go to get uh, return-free risk. Right, So for as long as I've been investing and paying t- attention to the market, just based on the prevailing uh, interest rates, there's been no viable financial assets that are alternative. So personally, I have kept 0% of my net worth in bonds this um, for the last you know 20 years because investing as in bonds has made no sense at all. Over the next 10 or 20, as interest rates continue to rise, there may come a time period when I finally decide to add bonds to my portfolio. If yields get to a high enough point that you know it, it seems to make sense to to add them, so that is a, that is an additional challenge that investors have to face. And not only inflation, not only potentially stagflation, but also investing in a world where valuation has become much more important than it has over the last decade, simply because of zero percent interest rates. Now, I am not a portfolio manager. I am not a wealth manager. I don't manage anybody else's capital except for my own. So what I what I do with my money is going to be consistent with what I've done with it for the last 10 years. The way that I handle, mentally handle, uh, and financially handle the volatility that we're experiencing in the market and the potential for 10-year period of essentially flat returns, which, by the way, there is historic precedent uh, for. From the 1960s to the 1980s, the S&P 500 returned a 0%. From 1929 to 1950s, that was a 25 year period, the stock market returned 0%. I guess I should say the price return of the market uh, was a 0%. The total return was higher than that because dividend yields uh, shot up. And if you were buying, if you were buying and holding, if you were dollar cost averaging for long periods of time while prices went nowhere, uh, your actual return was positive. But fast forward the, the clock to you know ten years from now, there is historic precedence for the S and P 500 essentially being at the same price that it is today. If that was to, to happen, would you as an investor be able to to handle that? Well, that gets back to the the very first question, the question that so many investors skip over, and that is, what are you investing for? What time period are you investing for? If you're putting money away, when do you need? to access that money? If the answer is within the next five years, that money shouldn't be in the market in the first place. That money should be in in a safer asset. If you're investing because you want to use that money in retirement 20 years from now, then that is perfectly acceptable. right? Then you can stomach a 10-year period of 0% returns. You can stomach a 10-year period of higher than average inflation or even potentially stagflation. And that's at least from a financial perspective. From an emotional perspective is an entirely different thing. Do you have the resolve as an investor to potentially pour money into an asset class that you've heard has historically delivered higher than average returns and sit up with seeing statement after statement after statement of essentially zero or negative or very low returns on your investment? Do you have the resolve to do so? There's no way to know that unless you actually Uh, live through it. Personally, I have the resolve to do so. Nothing that I've seen over the last year or 18 months has changed my view that, that the stock market is the greatest wealth creation machine of all time. And I want the bulk of my wealth in it because over long periods of time, over appropriate measurement periods, which is decades, I believe it will provide me with a more than satisfactory return so that I can live exactly the life that I want when I quote unquote retire which by the way, I don't think I ever will uh, retire, but that's just a a theoretical uh, construct. And if the market returns zero for the next 10 years, so be it. That means that my purchases, as I continue to buy uh, one, two, three, five years from now, I'll get them at better and better and better valuations. And eventually, if the companies that I own or the S and P 500 earnings power uh, continues to rise. Eventually, that will be reflected in prices. Another thing: if you are in asset accumulation mode, if your retirement is truly 10 or 20 years off, best case scenario is the market goes nowhere or even declines over that period. If you are buying assets, the lower the prices are, the better that is for you in the long term because that indicates that future returns will be higher. Worst case scenario is that asset prices shoot up, uh, recover, remain super elevated. And then when you need to money, when you need to to retire, that's when the decline uh, happens. Um, So keep that in mind. Your, your, Your intended holding period matters dramatically
0: with what you want the market to do. Yeah, so on that intended holding period or ideal time horizon, You mentioned, I think, in your newsletter, the sort of mission statement in your newsletter is to think long term and invest better. You help readers to do that. So long term, is that a completely subjective phrase relevant to whoever's saying it? Or are there some best practices that we can apply to what long term means? Is it, for example, always over 10 years or is that too reductive?
1: Yeah, it, it depends on long term means different things to different people. In general, when I think of the word long-term, it depends on what asset I'm talking about. If, if I'm buying an individual stock, to me, long-term is, is three years or five years, right? I want to see how the company executes over that three or five-year uh, period. I want to judge its revenue. I want to judge its margins. I want to judge its products. I want to judge its management team over, say, a three to five-year period. I think that that is a reasonable amount of, of, of long-term. If you're looking at the, uh, at the index, uh, level I think long term has to be a period of ten years um, there 's this uh, chart that i that I put up which shows the various returns that investor can get over various holding uh, periods. If your holding period is ten years, the odds of you earning a positive return on a stock investment is very high 90 percent uh, but that means that ten percent of the time over a ten year holding period uh, you could be looking at a net Uh, negative uh, return. Uh, That figure flips to being positive 100% of the time over a 15 and 20 year period. Essentially, the odds of you earning a positive real return, real meaning after inflation by making an investment in the market, flip to nearly guaranteed historically over a 15 or 20 year period. Any shorter than that, and you are taking on uh, the risk that, that the market could deliver a real uh, negative return over a shorter time period. But for, for me, when I make an investment in just like an index fund, my preferred time period for a long term would definitely be at
0: least 10 years. Got it. Yeah, really helpful. Okay, well, if we can turn our minds back to what to invest in, we don't again need to be too specific here, but uh, we adopt a, a thematic approach here at so, so We apply that thematic lens to markets in the hope that we can aid investors investing for the long term and certainly a multi decade time horizon would be applicable there too. So to what extent do you think long-term investors should look to identify these secular thematic trends that I guess are either immune or certainly less sensitive to market cycles? What are your thoughts on that?
1: So are you talking about individual trends like innovations that are adoption and markets that are growing versus markets that are shrinking?
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Again, when I'm deploying money tactically, so into an individual company, I want to buy companies that can grow regardless of the market cycle over the next 10 or 20 years. The only way to do that is to either be rapidly taking share in a market that is shrinking or perhaps stable, or to be a participant in a market that is growing regardless of the uh, the economic cycle. So think about the last 10 years. One market that has been growing regardless of what's happening in the uh, overall economy is the move away from linear TV towards... Towards streaming, right? Netflix basically kicked off this market in 2009, 2010, and consumers have been shifting from linear broadcast TV towards streaming. And even today, they haven't fully made, made, made the switch to everything uh, going. So I want to invest in, in a trend like that, in a trend that I could see continuing for the next 10, 10 years, 20 years, regardless of the the economic uh cycle so another one is the shift away from uh internal combustion engines towards electric vehicles i'm pretty confident that even if 2023 is a is a big year as a big um it's a terrible year economically if recession happens that more consumers are going to shift away from internal combustion engine cars and towards electric vehicles now the pace of of adoption of electric vehicles might decline, like the growth rate might decline if if the economic conditions are are severely uh, poor. However, I still think that the market share of electric vehicles is going to grow when compared to ICE vehicles. And I think that that trend should play out over the next at least 10 years, possibly uh, 20 years. So when I'm making tactical investments, I do want to make sure that there are either strong tailwinds in place for the entire market, or at the very least, a very strong reason that a company is going to continuously take market share in a market that is at least stagnant. Investing in declining markets is not something that I'm really interested in.
0: Got it. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, I want to use this juncture then to, to get back to the newsletter, your newsletter, that is. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I think it's really worth talking about. I think there's some fascinating insights in there. I'm now subscribed. I read, I think, on the welcome email that it encourages readers to think long-term and invest better. So just perhaps so I guess, round off and underline some of what we've discussed already so far. Tell us about... How you decided to put all of your energy and completely focus on this long term investment approach. I'm particularly interested to hear whether there was a eureka moment, perhaps.
1: I started studying the markets in 2004 after I graduated college. And I just started to devour investing books on every style of investing that you can can name. I read books about uh, real estate, I read books about uh, laundromats. I read books about bonds and fixed incomes. I read books about stock investing, and I quickly developed my investing heroes to be all the all the classics, right? Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Seth Klarman, David and Tom Gardner, etc. And when I looked over the various investing choices that were available to me, the one that appealed to me the most and the one that best matched my personality was the stock market. Um, the stock market generates very good long term returns for investors, if we're out, you know, 10% per year over when measured over long periods of time. And the thing that I personally liked about the stock market was I didn't have to do the management at all. Uh, real estate did not appeal to me as an investor at all because I had no interest in managing tenants or fixing buildings, right? If that is within your skill set to do so, uh, real estate can be a great asset class to add to your portfolio. But it just did not match up with my personality. I can handle volatility. So as I mentioned before, I have zero bond exposure. Um, I do think there's a role for bonds in a a portfolio in reducing volatility. But volatility does not bother me at all. I've set up my financial life so that I can handle large amounts of volatility. But it was really just a matter of reading the right books and studying and studying markets. Uh, Jeremy Siegel's books and particular stocks for the long run is a great book on the long-term history of the uh, the stock market uh, in the United States. Right, any book by uh, by Jack Bogle shows that the easiest way to build wealth is to take advantage of the the U.S. Uh, stock market. Right, just deploy capital into that consistently over long periods of time, and the odds of you earning a satisfactory return and compounding that return at a very high rate are are very very good uh, over long periods of time. So it was really just about. Studying those books, interacting with other investors, particularly online, that I slowly became brainwashed to believe that uh, the stock market is the place
0: I wanted to invest. Yeah, great. And I think we've got a couple of people with questions on that. So, firstly, Darshan, I've just invited you to speak. Yeah, let's hear what you've got to say.
2: Well, Brian, first of all, uh, thank you for uh, having this talk on Twitter. I do want to say that uh, you know, like you said about the education portion, the reading the books. Uh, is very helpful, not just from uh, education on, uh, how to and where to invest, but also just having the mindset to invest, which you, you know, emphasize several times. The other thing I do want to say is there's other resources online, like your course. I recently took Brian's course. I'm just letting everyone know that on, uh, financial statements and it was excellent. Highly recommend that. It was a very good course to understand how to read financial statements. With that said, I do want to ask a question about investing in, uh, stocks. In a bear market, I'm of the belief that although I do like growth stocks and, you know, secular trends, I think in a bear market, I would like to have a dividend in place. So, so you know, I'm very much into investing in companies that are growing, uh, but also have a uh, pay a two, three percent dividend. So in, you know, in the near term, uh, while we figure out where this market is going, we're getting paid to have our money allocated in the market. Uh, where is your thought on value versus growth? Uh, on dividend stocks or investing in general.
1: Well, oh, thank you. And thank you for the plug on the, um, the course. I'm glad that you uh, enjoyed it. So dividends is a interesting topic. Uh, there are lots of investors that like to receive cash payments from their, their companies as they own them. And by the way, Buffett is one of them, right? While Buffett himself eschews paying dividends out of Berkshire Capital, he sure does like putting his capital into companies that pay dividends out to their investors. And Dividends are just one choice that management teams have when they are creating uh, profits for their in- investors. Historically, dividend companies have been, as a group, if you buy nothing but dividend companies, specifically dividend uh, companies that continually raise uh, their dividends, that group does tend to outperform the market when measured over long periods of time. So whether or not you focus on dividends is really more about you as an investor, more so than, than anything else. Personally, I do not focus on companies that pay dividends to an investors. That is primarily because my investing style is to try and buy and hold companies that can compound shareholder wealth, really grow their business operations, and have the potential to deliver multi bagger returns for their investors. The kind of companies that I personally go after tend to be on the verge of profitability or starting to generate profitably, and they are rapidly in reinvestment mode. So all of the company's profits are going to expand current operations, hire more engineers, hire more salespeople, expand into different geographies, launch new products and services, etc. That tends to be a riskier investing strategy than buying companies that pay dividends, uh, but it's one that suits my investing style. So I'm not focused on dividends at all. If I was focused on dividends, one big mistake that a lot of people make that are are dividend investors is they overemphasize dividend yield, right? The yield that you get on, on your investment. And it makes so much sense to do so, right? If you're, if you're, if the S&P 500 has a dividend yield of say, I don't know, two, two and a half percent, whatever it is right now, isn't it very tempting to only buy companies that yield 3% or 4% or, or 5%? But that is very, very tempting to do. But the reason that companies tend to have higher than average dividend yields is because the market is telling you that that company has no good uses for the capital and that company's long-term profit growth potential is likely to be very, very poor. So I would just caution people from, if you're going to be a dividend investor, from overly focusing on dividend. Yield. If I was to buy a company that paid a dividend, I would be much, much happier to buy a company with a lower than average dividend yield, but I would demand that the profits are still growing at an adequate weight, say at least 10% uh, per year. If you're going to be investing in any individual company, there's really only two reasons to, to do so. Another one reason is that company offers you something that investing in the market in general does not. Right, so for most uh, most investors, the thing that investing in an individual company offers you is return potential, capital appreciation that is far higher than the market itself can deliver. Right, that's the number one reason that most people invest in a stock because they think that that stock can double or triple or quadruple or ten x far faster than the market um, than the market uh, could. Another reason that people invest in individual companies is because it offers some other feature when compared to the market. Perhaps it has a much lower beta. So its stock does not bounce around as much, perhaps offers a higher dividend yield so that you can get more income from that individual investment. But if I'm going to be deploying capital into an individual company and taking on individual individual stock uh, risk, I want to be well compensated for doing that. I want the returns that I earn from my investments to be far higher. If I was just going after dividend income, I would just skip investing in individual stocks altogether and just buy the entire market because then you're taking on none of that individual company uh, risk. So it just depends on what type of investor
0: uh, you are. Yeah, thanks, Ashan. Great question. Uh, Dimitri, I think you're up
2: next. Uh, Do you have a question for Brian? Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, My question is regarding your checklist. Uh, You have an amazing checklist, and I use it very frequently. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was the fact that we are now living in a different rate environment to which we are not accustomed and i I was wondering if are you thinking of making any changes and if so what they may be for your checklist in order to filter stocks better thank you so much
1: great thank you so much for um for for the question i'm glad that you Download the checklist, and if you ever have any suggestions about things that I'm doing wrong or any any, um, uh, updates that you suggest, I'm always open to ideas. The checklist in its current form is only in its current form because of peer review. People downloading it, people saying, why did you do this? People pushing back. Uh, So if you have suggestions and upgrades to it, I am all ears for how to do so. So the checklist that that, uh, you're referring to, what that's designed to do is to figure out how close of a match... Any particular company is for what I'm looking for in a business. It is purely a measure of business quality, right? And on that checklist are things like moat, moat direction, uh, management team, the relationship with the customer. Is revenue recurring? Are customer acquisition costs high? Is the balance sheet have more cash than debt? Is it free cash flow positive? Is it net income positive? Has it stock beaten the market? How is it? Perform versus Wall Street estimates, et cetera. The point of that checklist is not to focus on valuation at all. The whole point of that checklist as it exists today is focused on business quality. And whether rates are, you know, zero or 10% or whatever the heck they might get to, that to me is irrespective of whether or not the business itself is a quality company and if it's a good match for my investing style uh, moving forward. However, the checklist scores, the output of them, is really just step one of do I want to invest in this business? It's the most important step, but it's just step one. Step two is after I get this list of quality companies that that match what I'm I'm looking for. Step two is is it a good buy today based on the current market cap and the long-term potential? aka the valuation of the business. And that is the part that's going to change. In a zero interest rate environment, uh, historically, I have really underplayed valuation, and I personally still believe that valuation should be the last step and the least important step of my investing, um, in my investing process. But if you know rates rise dramatically and valuation, and it makes much more sense to focus on valuation, I would make that change in step two, not in step uh, one. And by the way, in regards to valuation. Think about the greatest investments of the last ten or twenty years, right? Mastercard, Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Netflix, etc. Right? Were those companies good buys twenty years ago? Even if, even if twenty years ago their valuations were "quote unquote" insane. The answer is yes, right? The, the valuations of all those companies twenty years ago could have been double. Uh, what they were, and they still would have been good buys 20 years ago because all of those businesses executed so well and their revenue went up so much uh, during the last 20 years that the returns that shareholders have gotten from them would have been sky high even if you paid a nosebleed valuation back then. That fact is what has really informed my personal view on valuation and that the general idea is it's much more important to get the next Amazon into your portfolio than it is to get the next Amazon into your portfolio at the perfect valuation and the perfect uh, price. Uh, In fact, if you looked at Amazon's valuation 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago, whatever the time point is, the valuation probably would have been very high, right? And if valuation was the number one reason that you passed on buying Amazon while well, then focusing on valuation hurt you as an investor, it didn't really help you as an, an investor. I still think valuation is worth paying attention to and worth, and worth thinking about. But by and large, what I've experienced in the market is that getting the next mega winners into your portfolio
0: is far more important than getting them in there at the perfect price.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Dimitri. Yeah, and uh, I've just asked the Opto team actually to pin an ebook that we collaborated with Brian on. That a lot of these insights are in there, so that's what triggered my yeah my introduction. Because actually uh, we've got a free ebook. Uh, it's available to download. You can access it. It's the pin tweet on our profile, and a lot of these uh, strategies are in there. Um, so go ahead and download it if if you're interested. I thought, uh, Brian, we could just round off the session with. A couple of quick fire questions. So the email that you send every Wednesday, the newsletter that I've mentioned already, contains one simple graphic, one piece of timeless content, one Twitter thread, one resource like a website or tool, and one quote. So I thought I'd ask you for one resource like a website or tool that you'd recommend listeners to to pay attention to first, and then we'll finish with the quote. Sure.
1: I mean, investors today are truly spoiled, (laughs) truly spoiled with um, the amount of high-quality data and processing resources that we have at our, our, our disposal. Uh, there are dozens of very useful websites out there that you can look up company information, that you can do screens, uh, that you can get transcripts of management's conference calls, and you can you can get this information on YouTube uh, nowadays, That you can get it on podcast format. It's truly incredible. Uh, the resources that we have access to one of the ones that I plugged in my newsletter uh, today which is a sponsor of my newsletter is a website called ticker t-i-k-r uh.com. that is a fantastic website for um, looking at company financial information and getting access to to transcripts so that that's one that I have come to use much more in the last couple of, of years and that one is uh, is free to use you can free to uh, to sign up for but uh, I have a couple of threads out there on Twitter that you can you can look up just do Brian Frawley and search on Brian uh, Brian Faldin Resources, and I plug some of my favorite websites out there that are
0: free that have uh, great resources and tools for investors. Great. Thanks, Ryan. So let's finish with with a favorite quote or one that you've recently featured in the newsletter.
1: I'll go with my favorite quote of all time. It's by Benjamin Graham. In the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, the stock market is a weighing machine. I think everybody intuitively understands the first part. of of that quote. In the the short term, the stock market is a voting machine, right? If you've ever been to an auction, you understand what drives price in the short term. It is surely based on popularity of the asset and short term investor emotions and demand. And that is the thing that gets all of the attention, all of the airwaves, right? 99% of all financial content on CNBC or in the newspaper is talking about price. What just happened to the price of the stock, the price of an index the price of, of anything right that is where all the oxygen goes when it comes to to investing but I try really hard to teach investors um, to focus on the second part of that uh, saying which is in the long run it's a weighing machine. The weighing machine is something that is not intuitive. you have to study you have to search for information. Before you understand what the heck does the weighing machine part of that sentence even mean, and the weighing machine is simply the business fundamentals. As goes at an individual company revenue level, as goes sales, as goes margins, and as goes profits, the stock price will eventually reflect uh, whatever the company has has done. If a company ten x's its revenue, and 20Xs, its profits over the next 10 years. If you buy that company, the odds of you doing well as an investor are very, very high. If you buy a company at a very cheap valuation and that company's profits get cut in half over the next 10 years, the odds of you doing well are very, very, very poor, even if you get in it at a very cheap price. The exact same principle applies to the market as a whole. If the companies in the S&P 500 grow their revenue and grow their profits over the next 5, 10, and 20 uh, 20 years, the index will eventually reflect that reality. And if human innovation stagnates, if business products stagnate, the market will do the exact uh, same thing. So focus your energy on watching and weighing the market. Don't focus your energy on the price of the market.
2: Yeah,
0: fantastic. And a fascinating insight to end on, I think. Uh, That just leaves me to say thank you very much, Brian, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. And for all listeners, um, just remember that we run these events all the time, so to join future events, just subscribe to that daily newsletter that I mentioned. Uh, You'll receive event updates as well as a curation of our best content. We send that Monday to Friday and just sign up using the link in our Twitter bio. But yeah, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much for everyone joining. Uh, Hope to see you all soon. It's a very useful newsletter. I read it every day, so thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off, if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time,
2: co fruition.